I think as you, as a musician or an artist or a human being even, that when you engage in a certain area, like a room is formed around you in that area. You kind of form your own room. And every once in a while, someone punches a hole in the wall and you can kind of see new light. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. This episode's guest, Ian Mackay, is largely responsible for the development of the punk rock and hardcore scene in America, starting in the late 1970s and early 1980s. As a founding member of seminal Washington, D.C. bands Minor Threat and, later, Fugazi, as well as the co-founder of famed indie record label Discord Records, the last four decades of American underground music would look very different without Mackay's involvement. On an afternoon when the East Coast was in the midst of a severe, several-day-long windstorm, Mackay sat at a table at the Discord House in Arlington, Virginia, and spoke to us at length about the songs that changed how he thought about music. We should start by saying that, uh, as a sort of a disclaimer, in a way, uh, as a disclaimer that... um, there's a lot of uh, there. There are a lot of s- s- sticks and rocks in that divert the water in my in my creative life, you know. Um, and I, it's hard for me to find just a handful that are definitive. However, I'm happy to talk about a few of them. Um, three in this case uh, that, for um, sort of specific reasons, had an effect on the way I thought about. Music and a really and I and that for me they're positive. I'm not you know I mean I could there's I mean honestly the 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 counter songs the songs that would have the songs that would have had a sort of con- a contrary effect on me that may have um, that would have maybe compelled or propelled me to write music they're legion right there's so much shit out there there's so much music that I just put me off entirely. So that, I don't think we really need to give them, we don't have, there's not enough days in the rest of our lives to discuss all the music that I think is, that, 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 um, that prodded me along, uh, to do something different. However, there are a few songs in my chosen Melu, the things that I listened to that caught me, um, if not unawares, um, but they were challenged. They were challenging, um, and sometimes they were. They were. Um, 
like realizations in a way that they were songs that <clears throat> approaches the music that I had been thinking about. And then I found someone who was doing something and it was really mind blowing to hear, hear that. So, um, I thought I, my May Lou largely, I come out of punk rock, you know, I'm, you know, obviously I grew up and, you know, I was born in 1962. So I did a lot of time with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix, of course, is my all time favorite musician. So, I mean, I could talk at length about his effect, the effect his music has had on me and continues to have on me as I continue to study him. Um, and then by the 70s, I was listening to a lot of hard rock and a hard funk. Uh, by hard funk, I would say Parliament Funkadelic and the Gap Band, you know, Cool and the Gang, Lakeside, that kind of stuff. Hard rock, Aerosmith, Zeppelin, and of course, as a skateboarder, Ted Nugent was enormously important to us. Double Live Gonzo was a record that <laughs> like we wore to nothing. Um <clears throat> and I can still study that stuff and be, which is it's ironic considering how sort of diametrically opposed I think that Tendouj and I are. Um, and I think even then we were. I didn't realize it. Uh, but that has to go, that's sort of an indication of the power of the receiver, right? Because as musicians, you can transmit an idea. You can't control the reception, and if you are receiving, if you're looking for something in creativity, whether it's, or if you're looking for something in expression from somebody else's expression, your filter is what actually will assign the value to it. So I heard Nugent as an animal rights guy because he sang explicitly, he talked explicitly about the fact that he only ate meat that he himself had, from animals that he himself had killed. And in the 1975 and 76, 77, like in my world, like meat was something that came in a little sliced. It was already freshed up and sliced in a little bag. Mm -hmm. So the fact that here was somebody that said like, well, I'm not going to partake in that kind of factory stuff. I'm, I thought that guy is an animal rights guy. It's just ironic when you think about it. Um, so moving through that, then punk came along. And punk was, for me, um, punk was the portal uh, to the counterculture. And it was something that I had been really looking for. I think growing up in the 60s and being surrounded by rock and roll as, as a soundtrack, as, sort of, as, as a revolutionary form and deeply involved with social upheaval, social change and anti-war uh, women's lib, gay rights, like all that kind of social upheaval, rock and roll was such a central part of that. And then the 70s, the, the, it divorced itself from that. It was like 70s, rock and roll was a more hedonistic and um, materialistic and kind of, <clears throat> it's a little bit like the Royals or something. It became like, it was so lofty, the strata of rock and roll like the, where it was like a class system, like they existed at a level that was so far out of reach, especially for a kid growing up in Washington, D.C., who didn't really know how to play guitar, but wanted to play guitar. Mm. And it seemed entirely impossible. Um, and I had given up, hence my skateboarding, you know, why I became a skateboarder, because I thought there's no way I can actually do this, because I don't even understand, I just didn't understand how it worked or how anybody got to the level these people got to. Um, but when I came to punk, which was really through my high school friends who were listening to 
punk slash new wave slash Rocky Horror, that kind of era. Um, and me really arguing vociferously against punk because I was a Ted Nugent fan, but then being <laughs> forced to actually listen to punk since I had never really, really studied it. Um, that's, you know, I remember hearing, listening to these records. My sister lent me some records and my friend Bert Kiros lent some records and hearing the Sex Pistols' first album specifically, but also The Damned and The Clash. Another band called Tough Darts, which they were a New York band, very yeah. kind of very obscure, but and kind of corny, but kind of great. Um, nonetheless, all those bands were really... Um, they forced me to rearrange my understanding of music. Prior to that, <clears throat> I had been fed by commercial radio and um, I, my body was not accustomed to anything that wasn't processed in that same way. Uh, the analogy I've used in the past and might be beneficial for this particular um, discussion is that if you were raised eating at McDonald's every day of your life and then you find yourself at a Vietnamese restaurant, you might look at the plate and not recognize what's on that plate. It doesn't look like dinner to you, but it's dinner for a lot of people. And it's probably, well, no, not probably, it is better for you. Um, and once you make that leap where you accept that dinner could look it's like something different than a hamburger and french fries, then you open your mind to all sorts of forms, all sorts of food. So for me, coming to punk would really once... Now, I think it was really the song Bodies by the Sex Pistols, which was very rock and roll sounding, but the lyrics were so terrifying. Um, and uh, it just shifted me. And then suddenly I found myself going headlong into a world of music that no one had ever talked to me about before. It was an infinite, and like, which felt like an infinite um, chamber of discovery. And I can say now that was 1979. So we're talking 39 years ago. Um, that chamber of discovery continues on. I'm still, my mind is still being blown. Now, I don't always listen to punk rock necessarily. But <clears throat> I think the fact that I went into punk rock really opened me up to all forms of music in a way. Because really... Once you turn the radio off, which I did, you realized the world has produced so much incredible music that would never see the airwaves because the airwaves are by and large controlled by people like essentially the audio form of McDonald's. You know, they're just selling you stuff. So um, I'm very grateful to... Uh, I'm grateful to punk for that for that reason. Uh, now, I should also say, just since I use the word punk liberally, as you'll hear, um, that my definition for punk is the free space. And what I mean by that, it's a space in which ideas, new ideas can be presented without being overly dictated, like, or too beholden to profit. So what I found in punk was that the audience gathered to say, what do you got? Show us the idea. Whereas rock and roll or most forms of music 
the idea is like they're already established and people are going to see this band, you know, like, and I think that's actually today is really the case. Like, I, it's very interesting. There is a lot of underground stuff going on, but it's very interesting how much, how, how dominant advertising is in music today. Um, you know, if you don't, you know, people's sense of um, devotion to um, the internet in terms of what to go see is, I find startling. Um, it reminds me, I was talking to a college kid not so long ago, and she said, she lived in New York City. I said, oh, do you just walk around the, you just grew up here? She said, no. I said, do you just, do you just walk around the neighborhood and just pop into stores? She, she said, oh, God, no. She said, I would never, I would never go into a store until I can examine their Yelp reviews. And she was really serious about it. She would never go to a shop unless she'd already read reviews about the shop online. And I said, but don't you, aren't you interested in like discovery and finding things? And she says, there's not enough time in life. And I said, my response to that was, that's all you got. Time. That's all you got. So I, that, I think people also, I think there is a parallel. I think a lot of times people don't go see bands unless they've, they've got, they've come with some sort of credential or some sort of reference that's already some website or some blog or somebody has given it the thumbs up or something, um, which is not exactly punk in my mind, but whatever. Um, Pre-approved. Right. Whereas punk was not pre-approved. The first show I went to was the Cramps and Young Verbs. There's a poster up there on the wall. That's the first gig I ever saw. Um, it was actually the Chumps, the Urban Verbs and the Cramps, February 3rd, 1979. And that's when it was on. I just knew right then and there, like, yep, that's, this is where I want to be. I found the counterculture. I found the freaks, my fellow travelers. So I listened to a lot of early punk. I listened to Sex Pistols, The Damn, The Clash. Um, and then I started, once you kind of cracked I cracked the wall with that. Then I started finding smaller bands. We started, it was me and Henry and Bert Kuros, my brother Alec and Jeff Nelson, all of, you know, these early punk kids in D.C. And we were just so excited. Every time we go to this shop, Henry and I would go to this record store and we just, there was a box of dollar singles and we just buy up the singles. We always buy different ones because that way we'd have more to choose from. And um, so we first started really with the English stuff. UK subs and the ruts came early on and Australian stuff like the saints and radio Birdman, um, all those bands, we just were just digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And then there was, we got into, um, um, West coast stuff. I especially was blown away by danger house records, stuff like the, the dills and the weirdos, the X, the germs, um, that label, in many ways, for me personally, it was a template for Discord. Danger House was the coolest label. Um, and I should say I'm not a record collector. I just like music. And that's the form that they came on. So I'm not a, I'm not a weirdo collector dude. Um, not that there's anything wrong with the weirdo collector dudes. but So I had a certain, you know, I love Sham 69. I loved, you know, like early Oi stuff. I was interested in Angel Upstarts and and um, Menace and all these bands. Um, and obviously here in Washington, the Bad Brains were central, although they didn't really have records at the time. Um, the reason I'm mentioning all these bands is that you'll, there's a certain form that you would kind of start to recognize. It's sort of like the punk kind of 
it's a it's a, a sturdy form of rock. Like it's usually fast and distorted and you know passionate, as evidenced by the shouting vocals, whatever. Um, and there's a band from England. Um, again, if we started to go in deeper, you know, we got into Wire and Band of Death, but there was a band called The Adverts. And the adverts were wrote great songs. They were they were kind of came out of the same um, form, like a band like Eater, or um, they were a little bit like clunky. They weren't like super rock and roll, but they had really great melodies and 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 really cool lyrics, one chord wonders, and things like that. Um, and they were they're pretty punk, but there was a B side to one of their songs. Um, that came out of nowhere. And that B-side, I think the A-side, I think is Cast of Thousands, I think. The B-side is a song called I'll Walk You Home. Are you familiar with that song? So why don't we listen to that song? Okay. It's called Adverts, and the band's the Adverts, and the song is called I Will Walk You Home. that song I remember I first heard that song really I mean I had heard obviously listened to the adverts I knew their songs well um, and uh, I was I used to go on tour I used to ask my friends to make me comp tapes just make me a comp tape so I have something to listen to on the trip and it makes me think about you and their tastes you know and and a friend of mine, uh, it's actually Michelle Cochran, who later on married Brendan Canty. Um, but Michelle made this tape, and she included this song on the tape. And even though I think I had, you know, I was aware of the song, I hadn't really studied it. It was like a B-side, and I hadn't really gone in deep. But on the tour, like, I started listening to this song, and it really... Um, what I was so blown away by is that, but well, as you said, there's there's a lot going on there. Um, first off, just the boldness of the vision. Like if you think about a band that largely existed in the punk milieu and was very much fast and kind of following that form, it's an unusual piece of music. You know, um, it has a lot of weird, almost Eastern European kind of stuff going on with like weird stringy type things in the background um there's obviously somebody can play piano um but it was interesting is the piano player is probably the best musician in the bunch um because everything else is kind of clunky and out of tune there's a lot of tuning problems in there but it makes it 
real. Like I actually believe Tim or TV Smith. I believe those words. I believe that the emotion of that song, um, and the and the melody is so sweet. Um, it's just a heavy piece of music. It's a heavy form of expression uh, to me. Now, someone else might hear and go like, ah, it's a terrible song. That's fine. I don't give a damn. Like for me, that's a great piece of work. And uh, it really affected It really affected me. And it, this hearing it now, it affected me. Because I think it's such a, um, it just came out of left field. And, it, and it, I think it pushed open, I think as you, as a musician or an artist or a human being even, that when you engage in a certain area, like a room was formed around you in that area. You kind of form your own room. And every once in a while, someone punches a hole in the wall and you can kind of see new light. And I think this was an example of that. Hearing this, not that I felt like anything I was doing was was like the adverts, um, not that I thought, oh, now I'm going to do a song like I Will Walk You Home, but rather that there was this incredible potential for change to, 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 to bring the same kind of passion or authenticity to and into different forms. And also, I could I feel like they took advantage of a recording studio. Like they there was a good piano in that studio, right? And so they, they probably wrote this. The song was not written with a piano. They didn't have a piano player, as far as I know. So I suspect that they they had the song. And then some guy said, I could do some piano on that. Probably like the producer. I don't know. I'd love to ask. Actually, somebody I'll have to ask uh, Tim, should I ever have an opportunity to sit down with him again? Um, he's the guy that wrote the song. Or he's the singer. I think he wrote it as well. But... Um, It sounds to me like an inspired moment in the studio. And probably at the end of it, they're like, wow, this is weird. What are people going to make of this? And someone said, well, let's put it on as a B-side, <laughs> you know, and I'm glad they did. I think that it really, I think that early on for, for you know, like say members of Fugazi, like we listen to a lot, a lot, a lot of different kinds of music. And I think we were really interested in, uh, I feel like, um, this is a song that we all would have, like, we really studied intensely. Uh, and I love that it's out of tune. I think one of the, for me, I shouldn't say, I think, in my opinion, like, for my, in my musical listening experience, I find most modern recording or current recording, I, it leaves me really cold because it's, it's too good. Everything's too good. It's all like everything is digitally repairable, fixable, you know, and, uh, and if someone blows a note, then they're like, oh, well, we can, we can comp it. We can fix that using this device. I actually, I, I prefer the, the tyranny of the moment, you know, like I'm actually recording right now on an eight-track cassette because it is what it is. And that's what I'm interested in. It's like it is what it is. So when I hear this song, it's so earthy. Um, nobody would put that record out now. It's really not on RCA. 
Right. Um, so that I think that was that really was a, a that song for me. It just represented potential. You know, well, the ability to just do anything you wanted to do and still be yourself. Well, it, it reminds me of what you said earlier about punk being the free space. Right. And this that does not sound like air quotes punk, you know, right. by the typical definition. Right. But clearly that's where the band was coming from. No question. And clearly it resonated with you, who was someone for whom that idea meant a lot. And I also, I mean, and to be clear, like, yeah, I definitely, I did and do identify as a punk, so I don't, but I also, like, I love Janis Joplin. I love Joe Cocker. I love Jim. You know, I I love the Beatles. So there's a lot of things. It wasn't as if I only need I I only existed on a steady diet of discharge. You know, like I think that there was. Um, we always listen to a wide range of music. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who said that um, he was visiting me and he saw that I had this record and he just immediately like laughed about it because he couldn't believe I would have that record. But then I said, oh, would you, would you want to hear it? Let me tell you why I like it. And then he said it was life-changing for him. I often tell people that though I identify with punk, because I think of punk as a free space, my favorite genre of music is music made by people who don't have a choice in the matter. So that's why I'm, you know, like I'll listen to Nina Simone or I'll listen to um, Janis Joplin or or lumpfish for that matter you know it seemed clear that there was they had no choice in the matter that's what they had to do um I think that punk what I think of as punk or the underground that's where you find those people you know by and large I mean some of them are you know Nina Simone obviously is not up in the punk scene but but her spirit certainly spoke to that and um I think now rock and roll has become so commercially processed and so locked down that I think that in the 60s probably people who were pretty crazy still could be in that milieu. They could be, they could appear on the surface of what was thought of as the rock scene at the time. I think now you don't see that. I think to get to that level, you will have had to your your handles handlers would have had to figure out a way to get you to fit in you know whereas the underground is that's where you still find all the crazy people where the idea is that they just have to come out find their way The second song Mackay chose as being crucially important to him was a song by a band called The Need, entitled Let Them Eat Valium.
second thing I was going to tell you guys about in the mid '80s, <clears throat> I like, my arthritis had broken up at that point, and. 1985, I was in this band called Embrace. We were together for, we played for about nine months. And that just didn't work out. Um, and then that experience really was pretty discouraging because I think the desire to be in a band um, was so great that it sort of circumvented obvious things like don't be in a band with three people who've already been in a band that broke up together already broke up you know um it just didn't work out we i thought we did some nice music interesting stuff but it was very discouraging and i realized after that experience that i wasn't gonna form a band i didn't want to be in a band i wanted to play music and there's a distinction between the two things um to that, to that, to that point, I mean, I people say, "What have you been doing to yourself? Like, you don't play music anymore?" Oh, I play music. I play with I play with Amy and Joe three or four days a week. We practice, and we've been practicing for three years. We haven't done a single show, but I play music. I played music this morning. You know, I think about it and I play it all the time. But it's just the way I am. Like, you know, you just when it's time, it's time. And if it's never time, then that's then that's when that's the time it was never. Um, so after Embrace, I really thought I, w I had this idea for music, and I really wanted to just play music. And I had these ideas about a form, um, and it was somewhat inspired. I think you know, the, obviously the Ruts had this to some degree. Bad Brains had a song called "Sacred Love." You know that song, kind of reggae-ish but rock kind right. of thing. Um, but I had this idea for like this kind of rhythm that really like was a driving rhythm, but also was, wasn't fast. And um, Cynthia Connolly, who I was going out with at the time, Cynthia and I were together for many years. She, um, in 1986, she went out to San Francisco and was working for Maximum Rock and Roll, which was a leading fanzine, punk fanzine. And she went there and lived there for six months. And um, while there, she, I think, you know, I don't know how it came to her attention, but Tim Yohannan, who was the editor of Max Rock and Roll, they had this amazing record collection there. And in that record collection, there was a record that maybe he was playing, that she heard him playing, but somehow it came to her attention. It's a song um, called Let Them Eat Valium by a band called The Need. This is mid-'80s. And... This is beyond obscure, this song. But she said, oh, I think Ian might like this. And she sent me a copy of the record. Um, and the song itself was, in many ways, was almost as exactly like the song, the music I was thinking about. And it had come from 1979. It was a British band. They had their own label called Vitriol Products. Um, That's that one. Um, really mysterious. That's all there is. There's no information about them whatsoever. The cover is bold. Just all black. One corner, there's just a 
black and white illustration of a girl sitting with her head in her hands. Um, no information whatsoever, <laughs> just that there's a date on it. There, the musicians are working in service to the song. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's the song. I think that a lot of times with bands, people think about it. it's the instruments. It's not. It's the song. Like we are in service to the song. And that's, I think that's what you're talking about is that notion of like that you understand like, yeah, you're not – maybe your instrument is quieter than you think it – everyone has relationship with their instruments based on like – in a mix based on where they stand on stage usually. So the bass player always thinks the song was like, yeah, bass and then there's some drums and some guitars and a vocals. Right, and then the guitar player, like, yeah, yeah, it's my guitar and the other guy's guitar. And then there's the drums and there's a the bass and there's the vocals. Like that's the way that the strike. That's you know, but I think that if you are certain serving the song, like you just go for the 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 sort of almost the conceptualization of the song as a its own entity, and that we're actually just ingredients for that. Now this song really caught me off guard. Now it was it that was the kind of meter that kind of pulsing rhythm rhythmic thing uh you had mentioned while we were listening to it that it sounded like crazy train which is i wouldn't know because i didn't listen i turned the radio off in 1979 for real um i have no name but i don't know but but or so the, this actually this record was 80 i guess this came out but when did that that was 82 or 83 is that ozzy yeah, yeah. Ones, yeah blizzard of oz era right um just that bass the bottom yeah. yeah um what I found incredible about this song was a few different things. One is I love the production of it. Just punches hell. Um, it's so determined as a song. Like it's just insistent, right? And the rhythm of it is it's like it becomes like a trance. Um, the drums are so martial. I'm very unusual to hear. Like can you imagine like a – like a rock attacker, how they would how they would approach that wouldn't you wouldn't have that kind of raw emotion. I think this sort of speaks to what you're getting at. It was is the idea that they're it wasn't it's not really about the it's like they're trying to like that they're bringing something really like unique. Each person's like the way they're approaching their instrument is actually creating a new sound. Um, I think the lyrics are great and. When you think about it, so prescient. Let them eat Valium. You know, you can't change life, but you can change your reality. That's pretty good. You know, I have a nine-year-old son. And about seven or eight years ago, he had some illness. And for the first time, I was we had to go get some antibiotics or something like that. I had to go to the pharmacy. Now, I should say that I don't take any medicines. I just don't. It's a general practice. I just don't. I don't take vitamins. I just try to eat well. So I don't have a relationship with a pharmacy. Um, as a kid, I used to go to the pharmacy to pick up stuff for my mom or whatever. And I remember going to the pharmacy and you go to the drugstore or, you know, and then you go in the back where the pharmacy counter is and it's usually – like a ghost town back there. There's nobody there. There's like one person shuffling around with a white coat, like a lab coat. And there's two baskets. One is A through M and the other one is N through Z, you know. And then they're like half full with a few filled orders. That's what I was expecting. When that data went up for my son's prescription, 
I got to a drugstore, a CVS, and um, the pharmacy in the back was like enormous. It had like a weight, it had like couches, like waiting room kind of set up. People were all, there's a line of people. And I looked behind the counter, there's three or four people working back there. And on the wall behind the register, there was not 26, but like 30 baskets. There was A and B, and there'd be like, B-A to B-H, you know, or whatever, you know, whatever. Like, But it was like the, and they were all crammed. And I thought, wow, like the pharmaceutical companies, they did it. They they have put the entire society, I did not know. I just didn't know. So in a way, like this, the notion of this song lyrically, I mean, give them crushes and call them crippled. You know, this is not to dismiss. I don't mean to dismiss all medications by any means, but is our country over-medicated? Is our culture over-medicated? Is our society over-medicated? No question about that. And that's a pretty good indication of it. So anyway, this is a very, what I loved most about that, I love the music, I love the lyrics, and I loved how mysterious this record was. No record, you can't, they that record doesn't even show up in most books, not early on, like the early like punk collective, like collected like all these records, like the, you look through like the, in, the um, indexes of like punk record books and they're just not in there. I couldn't find any information whatsoever. Henry found them. She found them, of course, because we, I played it on Henry's show and it got around because people, a lot of people listen to that show, his radio show. And then this guy wrote and he was so blown away that this, you know, this record he recorded 1980 suddenly would show up and people would talk about it so many years later. Um, fair, I'd, I'd like to meet the guy. I've never met him. I don't really know anything about him still, but, uh, this was an example of having an idea and then hearing somebody do something that was its not exactly the same idea, but it was at the time contextually, it was similar in a way like coming out of coming out of the like the early hardcore stuff and then the middle 80s, like the righteous spring embrace stuff. But there, it's another it's striking a different a different um, note or something. And and that was really Interesting. It's also when you think about it, it's interesting because like it's very lungfishian, right? Like right. not to bring lungfish back into it, but it just so that was before I had heard lungfish. I mean, lungfish they started playing in '86, I think, or '85 or '86. But I think the first time I saw them was the fall of '86. I think it was in DC Space. Um, of course, I knew Danny before that in Reptile House, um, but uh, yeah, it's a great record. That one right there, that's a good one. There's so much space in it, yeah. which is not, we were listening to Mission of Burma on the way down here, which mm-hmm. is great, but it's so yeah, it's really uptight, yeah. And this is just so open. Serving the song. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, it's a really it's a beautiful piece of music. And and so you heard this thing that was not well, unlike right, what it, you were hearing in your head. It was, it was, it was along the same lines. So because I was, in the beginning... So I, that summer, I really was thinking about music a lot and really just wanted to play. And then I met Joe Lally. He was, yeah, I'd seen him around, I knew him from around the scene, but the band Beefeater, um, they practiced in this house and Tomas, the singer, lived here. And 
1986, they were going on tour, and they took Joe along as a roadie. So Joe came the day to load the van, and he and I just sat at this table talking. And like we met each other a couple of times, but I didn't really know him. And we just started talking about how much music we liked, and I talked about James Brown and The Obsessed and Black Flag and whatever. And, and then when they came back... Um, no, we talked some more. And at some point, I heard he wanted to play. He was a bass player, and I was looking for someone to play music with. So I said to Joe, do you want to play music? Not be in a band, but do you want to play music with me? And he said, yeah, sure. So then the early Fugazi stuff, the stuff in the 86, is super, like, like rhythmic. Not you know, It's not exactly like that, but it's on that same, like, really kind of um, more martial, I would say, than embrace was you know more on that level and um so then we played for six months with a, a drummer named colin sears who later on went back he was in dag nasty before and after he went back to dag nasty so then we were looking for someone else to sit in with us and brendan was practicing in this house with with happy go licky which was sort of this right to spring guys reformulated and we just asked Brent if he wanted to sit in with us, so then he did for six months. But we spent a year playing music, and a lot of that music was, like, you know, Fugazi became itself, but it was very encouraging to hear something that had come out years earlier that was so much in line with the ideas that I had. Uh, and also, I love the fact that it's, nobody noticed. And it was just sitting there like a jewel waiting to be picked, you know. I love that. I love coming across music that you just walk past a million times. We're like, you know, sometimes I, like I have a lot of books. I have many, many, many books. And I'll look at it, I'll just put them on a wall and I have, you know, I have so many books I have not read yet. And every once in a while I'll just pull a book down and I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll read this. And I'll read it and my mind is exploded by it. And I'm so thankful that it was on the shelf. So I think, you know, in this case, I'm really glad for that format, like that piece of vinyl, that it was, it existed, that it was just sitting there waiting for someone to listen to it. Not to be too on the nose about it, but did you play it for the other eventual members of the oh. band? Well, not as a, not, I mean, we were all best friends, so, I mean, of course, but not because, like, here's, here's the, it was never, we, there was Never intentional like that. I've never been like, this is what we're going to do. Like, the question is, what are we going to do? Like, we're just going to play music and then we become ourselves. So there was no, it wasn't a frame. It wasn't like, this is what we, I want to do. It was just exciting to think that these guys did that and it just um, made things, again, seem possible. Final song chosen by Mackay was Tony Allen's Asiko.
So the last thing I was thinking about, I thought I'd throw a real left field kind of thing in, which is that over the years, you know, obviously I'm I come I come from a sort of a traditionalist point of view with music. I play guitar mostly, I play bass, I sing, but it's a pretty f- like I'm interested in really standard kind of formats with um, and then finding something unique in that format. Like I I really like it, just plain simple, and that's what I really respond to. I don't like a lot of production. I'm not interested in. I find it really especially. Polish? I don't like polish. I find that really discouraging because I think that when you're like you slather the polish on, you erase the the human, the humanity of it all. If somebody who's produced many records, like people love to double their vocals because they makes them feel better because the chorusing effect pulls them more into key. But I think you lose the emotion of it once you do that. It becomes because then the voice just becomes like an instrument. Which is fine, but it's not what I'm looking for. Um, so by and large, I don't really, when it comes to rock and roll or rock or punk, like I prefer um, really um, not lo-fi, but just just raw kind of recordings. That just they're well recorded, but no, I'm not interested in this sort of slathering this like I don't like strings for instance like generally speaking like Phil Spector and I probably wouldn't get along very well because the kind of that I mean if you listen to, what's interesting you listen to a lot of our early like the 60s bands like there are some great great bands but the production on those records is pretty horrific you know and it's sad like like someone like Melanie for instance who was, she's a pretty badass songwriter, but her songs, by and large, her records are so schmaltzy because that's what people thought would sell records. This is at a time where when you wanted to go in the studio, you had to go in with a producer and the producer would be, you know, was like, well, here's what we're gonna do. And then I'm gonna change this, you know, I'm gonna change this. You, you need a better chorus here or whatever, but there's a commercial. Engineers were lab coats. What's that? And the engineers right, were yeah. Right, so there's a different, it was, that it's it's sad like you really realize how you're not really getting to hear what they really sounded like these bands um what was great about punk was that no nobody in a lab cope was coming near us anyway so we were just recording ourselves so you hear a lot of authenticity in the early punk stuff that's just what they had like um having said that i'm very interested in like i love dub music I've done an enormous amount of time studying dub, especially early dub. I don't like later dub so much because again, it's then the machines are playing it. That's not interesting to me. What I love is early dub where people are really working the faders. So obviously Scientist um, and uh, Sly and Robbie stuff. Um, uh, by the early, early to mid eighties, there was this guy named Adrian Sherwood on you sound who I actually saw I was in a studio once and he's recording a record called um, Tunes from the Missing Channel which is was mind blowing to see him work because it was real time dub like he played the mixing desk 
it wasn't like a, it wasn't just like writing it all on like writing writing all the moves and just letting the the computer play it for you. He was hitting like um, effects and he had groups, different groups of instruments. He'd pop in and out, but it was all manual. So I watched him playing playing the actual desk. Uh, that was I love that. And I actually there was a period of time in the '80s like where I was doing dub mixes. Very inspired by Adrian Sherwood. There's a song called "Walking Song" by uh, by Scream, and then um, I think uh, "Blind Leads Blind" by Bee Theater. Um, but just really playing the desk. Um, so I spent, and I love reggae. I love reggae, and I love so that kind of production where it's really intentional, where the production itself is sort of front and center. It's not the point of production is not to make it sound palatable. The point is that they're playing the instrument. The instrument in this case is the actual studio gear. Um, so then you can imagine how exciting early hip hop was. Um, I'd always loved funk. I loved go go. Like just loved go go when I first heard. Trouble Funk and bands was just such a totally mind blowing to think that it was coming out of Washington. Still love Go Go. I was at one of my a school event with my kid the other day, and someone played a Go Go song, and made me I just I was home. I loved it. Um, so I was very interested in in hip hop. Then of course when um, Public Enemy came along. Uh, Terminator X, like the stuff that was going on, the Bomb Squad stuff was just incredible. Like they took music and turned it inside out and changed everything about what sounds what sounds could be. It was so great. Uh, and Fugazi was super influenced by Public Enemy. I mean, if you listen to a Repeater record, there's you know you listen to some Repeater, there's it's really like we were so blown away by this idea of like. Like almost like sounds being shot in and out of the, uh, you know, unexpected sounds, discordant sounds, um, repeating um, sort of squeals and stuff. That you know, that was really, again, like really, the world was ever opening. Um, all this is to say that I, I'm always interested in my, in coming across things that challenge me on a production level. Um, in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, I think it was early 2000s. Um, now I was well aware of Afropop, um, Fela Kuti and all that, um, and loved it. I love James Brown, I love Fela Kuti, I love the form. Um, for those people who don't know, Fela Kuti, it's, it's Nigerian Afropop and the songs can be 10, 15 minutes long. They might, song might go on for six or seven minutes before the first vocal appears. Very trancey. Um, strong melodies, lots of repetition. Um, a lot of times really odd um, syntax. Um, that serves as a hook, like just weird timing, delivery, um, and of course, great lyrics. 
the drummer in that band is a guy named Tony Allen, who is, you know, fantastic um, musician still playing today. In the early 2000s, he did a solo record called Black Voices. Are you familiar with that record at all? I've heard it. It's been a while. So this was a record that was made, um, I think it was made, recorded in France. Uh, and it's very dubby. It's very trippy. It follows almost no rules of... It's not even it's not really Afro pop. It's not funk. Um, the rhythms are unusual. The production is is really surprising. Uh, the bass comes in like on a parachute somehow. <laughs> it just comes fly, floating in out of nowhere. Um, this gave me a lot to think about. So the um, black voices sing. I mean, it's just again. That's like it's like X-ray music. It was like it was, when I first I heard that. I remember I, a guy I knew worked at a record store near here, um, and he said, "Oh, you know, I think you might find this interesting." And as I said, I had heard of Afro pop and I listened to Fellow Cootie. I but and I even heard Tony Allen's earlier solo records, which are very traditional. They came out in the seventies, um, but. Um, that thing was a shocker. Um, really, not that I would do anything like that necessarily, but it was nice to think that there was other avenues, um, other ways to get around. Mm. Now, singing, when you're listening to music now, that, like, for me, music is, it's like the Nile River, you know, and there's a million tributaries, any number of points where little streams open up um, and if I'm trying to think of point at one or two that say oh yeah that, that's a really that's a legitimate one or that eh, seems like a disservice you know uh, these are just a few examples of like moments in my life where I was listening to music where I thought I thought oh yeah I'm yeah this is right that's beautiful can I ask you one more question? Sure. Why did you do this? Ah, you asked. Okay. Nothing in it for me. Yeah, fair enough. It's a good, I mean, I appreciate that it wasn't my five favorite songs, um, but the real reason is that I could play um, I Will Walk You Home, Let Them Meet Volume, Black Voices, and his tune for the Missing Channel sings with some people and talk about music. That's why I did it. Next, I love, I love talking about music. And when I can play listen to music with people who actually really understand it or, or have an investment with it um, that in some way resembles mine oh I'm happy I'm happy Central Tremors is hosted and distributed by AudioStack and WYPR Baltimore. Look for and subscribe to our podcasts at wypr.org slash podcastcentral, including Life in the Balance, 
a monthly program that asks, what are the systemic issues in Baltimore that keep marginalized people from reaching their full potential? And what are the solutions to those problems? Also new to WYPR is The Noir and Bazaar, which explores the dark and strange stories we tell ourselves about human existence, occult history, ghosts, haunted houses, and secret crimes, with a special emphasis on stories that draw on the rich history and culture of Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors or to connect with us, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.